0: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built-in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor at The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, who should chair America's Federal Reserve?
0: The favourite for the job, really, at least according to the betting markets, is Gary Cohn, the president's top economics advisor.
1: And over 200 years on, could Jean-Baptiste Say's ideas on supply and demand still have relevance today? I think in particular, this notion that
2: if you have an overcapacity problem, uh, the answer is to cut production. Well, that might be true of particular products, but it's not true of the economy as a whole. And I think that's a lesson that uh,
1: really needs to be looked at with, with China in mind. But first, a 10-page manifesto criticising Google's diversity policies has been leaked and its in-house author, a software engineer called James Damore, sacked. The paper argued that the scarcity of women in top tech jobs was in part the result of innate differences between men and women. He's created such a stir that the firm's chief executive, Sundar Pichai, has cut short his holiday. Our US technology editor, Alexandra Switch, joins me now from Silicon Valley. Good morning, Alexandra. Good morning. Um, Could you explain why this is such a big deal? I mean, after all, this is one individual not expressing company policy. His views may be objectionable, but why is everybody so upset about them?
3: So there are two reasons for all the uh, hullabaloo about this. One is related to Google itself. And Google is under investigation by the Department of Labor for unfair pay practices. This stokes that fire. But the broader issue is about Silicon Valley itself. And there have been many recent incidents, including a few allegations of sexism at Uber, also venture capital firms. And so the issue is both about Google and its treatment of women, but also the position of women in the Valley. And so while this engineer, James Damore, seems to be speaking just for himself, the sentiment here is that he's saying what a lot of software engineers think but never say.
1: Indeed, I was going to ask you that. One would assume he's been roundly condemned, he's lost his job. But has he actually garnered some support as well?
3: So Google was in a very difficult position here. What Mr. Damore has said is that about 30% of the colleagues who are women who work alongside him are unqualified for their jobs, at least that's the suggestion of his memo. So women feel sidelined. At the same time, Google is a free speech platform. It owns the West's largest online video site, YouTube. And so they're supposed to protect free speech. In some ways, they were in an unwinnable situation. And by choosing to fire him, they've made a poster child for free speech of Mr. Damore. He filed a charge with the U.S. National Labor Relations Board before he was fired, saying that Google's upper management was trying to shame him into silence. And I think he's going to take this fight to the courts. So really, difficult situation for Google. And now Mr. Damore has some free speech advocates backing him up, even though what he said was quite offensive to many.
1: How does Google compare with, with other firms? You've mentioned that it's a Silicon Valley wide problem. Is where, where, where is Google on the spectrum?
3: Several companies have started publishing their numbers to show the progress they're trying to make in increasing diversity not just of women but of minority groups in America. The sad reality is that Google, like others, has not made much progress. Google, while they spend a lot of time talking about increasing diversity, suffers from the same problems that a lot of technology companies have, which are there's not a huge supply of female Software engineers. Is anything being done to address that? There's a huge initiative to teach women to code and girls to code early, but it requires a huge amount of changing of social structures and the way that parents are bringing up their girls as well. So it's not something that the technology industry can do single handedly, but it is something that a lot of people are investing in, hoping to change the ratios for future generations.
1: Alexander Switch, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. If you have any thoughts on that controversy or anything else, do let us know. We're on Twitter, at Economist Radio, and you can also reach us via email at radioateconomist.com. Next, who will head the Federal Reserve? Janet Yellen's term watching over the central bank for the world's largest economy ends next February. But will she get another? And if not, who will take her place? Our US economics editor, Henry Kerr, joins me now from Washington. Hello, Henry. Hello. Firstly, that question, will she get another? Is she a possibility that she might get a second term?
0: I think it is a possibility. The the president has said it's a possibility. No one knows whether he's being serious about that or not. And, of course, from President Trump's perspective... She probably doesn't agree with his views on lacks of financial regulation. But the big thing that speaks towards reappointing Yellen is that he sees her as a low interest rate person. And traditionally, certainly populist presidents would want low interest rates at the Federal Reserve to help the economy during their time in office.
1: But are other names being discussed as alternatives to her?
0: Absolutely. So the favourite for the job, really, at least according to the betting markets, is Gary Cohn, the president's top economics advisor. Now, he's a relatively unusual candidate to be Fed chair in that he doesn't have an academic economics background like Janet Yellen does. The last. Cho didn't was William Miller in the 1970s, who had a a fairly unsuccessful term at the Fed. But what what Gary Cohen does have is experience from being the number two at Goldman Sachs. But there's some concern that people don't really know what his views on monetary policy are.
1: Indeed, I suppose he'd be seen as President Trump's proxy. Is that fair, that he would be there to implement what Mr. Trump wants as a monetary policy?
0: Sure, and that's another reason to think that President Trump would put his own person in charge of the Fed. Of course, the Fed is an independent central bank, but presidents usually prefer to have their own person there. That said, presidents have reappointed Fed chairs from the other party, but the notion that the president would want his own man at the Fed does point towards it changing over.
1: And we've mentioned the two front runners, but uh, are there other candidates in the frame?
0: The other main names are um, Kevin Walsh, who was on the FMOC. And then there's uh, John Taylor, an academic who wrote the famous Taylor Rule, which describes how central banks tend to react to unemployment and inflation in a mathematical algorithmic sense. Uh, what's interesting about that is that Republicans in Congress have for some time uh, demanded that the Fed follow such a rule, and they usually recommend John Taylor's rule. So he also gets discussed. At the moment, they're seen really as outsiders, and Gary Cohn and Yellen are the front runners.
1: Now, of course, her term doesn't end till next February, but is it a, a burning issue in Washington at the moment?
0: So I'd say it's it's relevant to the economic policy debates that are happening right now, certainly. The Fed is poised to announce next month that it's going to begin shrinking its balance sheet, unwinding the process of quantitative easing, the policy rather, of quantitative easing that it implemented during and after the financial crisis. Now, there's an interesting question as to whether the next Fed chair will, will approve of what they've set in motion or not. And some people have speculated that the reason that the Fed's been so keen to press ahead with shrinking its balance sheet this year is to kind of lock in the next Fed chair. And it's possible that you you would have a Fed chair come in who's a big sceptic of the large balance sheet the Fed has and wants to accelerate that process. And the fact is that the, the time to get such big appointments approved means we could expect an announcement before too long.
1: Henry, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, This week's Economist has the third instalment in our series on big economic ideas. This week, we're looking at Jean-Baptiste Say and his eponymous law, the theory that supply creates its own demand. Over 200 years on, some economists scoff at Say's law, but our emerging markets editor, Simon Cox, thinks this is a pity. He's on the line from Hong Kong. Hello, Simon. Hi. Firstly, tell us a bit about Jean-Baptiste Say. Who, Who was he? Uh, He was a very interesting figure. Um, He had quite a successful career
2: in letters and politics, and he actually found favour with Napoleon Bonaparte. He had distinguished himself in battle against Prussian invaders, uh, and he was also a very eloquent pamphleteer. So uh, Napoleon was quite keen to have him become his spin doctor, essentially, and, and write speeches on his behalf. But uh, Jean-Baptiste Say was having none of it. He thought that Bonaparte was a a usurper. So he uh, actually abandoned politics for a time. And what was the economic background at the time that led Say to develop this theory? The economists at the time were wrestling with what they called general gluts. Uh, This was a time of great technological advance, particularly in things like cotton spinning. And so they were seeing very great gains in manufacturing output after Napoleon fell there was a depression, uh, there was a lot of austerity. So uh, there was a period after the Napoleonic Wars in which it looked plausible to argue that uh, you could have such a thing as a general glut,
1: an oversupply of goods and commodities. And he came up with his law. It doesn't make a lot of sense of face value. Supply creates its own demand. Can you explain it? Perhaps the easiest way to understand
2: it is with a a stylized example. You can imagine a very simple economy, one that just comprises uh, a single workshop and a single farm, and the farm can produce 10 chickens, let's say, and the workshop can produce either 10 hats or 10 shirts. And you can imagine that the farmer sets out to make his 10 chickens, and the reason he does that is because he wants to buy 10 shirts. And it may be that the workshop producer really wants to buy 10 chickens, and in order to do that, He decides to produce 10 hats. Now, again, he's demanding as much stuff as he's producing. The problem is he's producing the wrong stuff. Uh, He's producing hats, whereas the farmer wants shirts. So they come to the market and he can't sell any hats. So there's overcapacity in hats. At the same time, it gets even worse because he can't sell his hats. He won't be able to buy any chickens either. So there'll be overcapacity in chickens. Now, there's a certain kind of uh, economic commentary you see quite often in the newspapers that would say, we have overcapacity in chickens, we have overcapacity in apparel, so the workshop should shut down and the farm should shut down. They've failed the market test. And that's clearly nonsense. What we need is a switch in production in the workshop. Uh, And then we'll be able to sell the apparel and be able to buy the chickens. So that was Say's insight that often what looks like an overcapacity problem can be solved by producing differently or even producing more rather than producing less. So is Say coming back into fashion? Uh, Not really. I'm hoping to bring him back into fashion. Um, I don't believe that Say's law is correct. Um, There are a couple of ways in which it falls down. Uh, Most notably, he didn't really take into account uh, money. And so if you get a widespread propensity to hoard money, uh, it can have a depressing effect. You can have uh, an undersupply of money and oversupply of everything else. So I I don't think he's correct, but I think some of the underlying intuition has been lost sight of. And I think in particular, this notion that if you have an overcapacity problem, uh, the answer is to cut production. Well, that might be true of particular products, but it's not true of the economy as a whole. And I think that's a lesson that uh, really needs to be looked at with with China in mind, that uh, China is not overproducing overall. It's just certain sectors have got ahead of themselves. And in pulling back on those sectors, China needs to make sure it doesn't underproduce as a whole. It needs to remix production, not cut back on it.
1: Thank you, Simon. We'll call it Cox's Law. Too kind. Well, that's it for this week's Money Talks. Don't forget, if you have any thoughts, comments or suggestions, please get in touch via Twitter. It's at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist.
3: If you want to work
0: smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented
1: adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.